Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. They didn't like the people saying that this was the Messiah. They, they started getting nervous because there's starting to be some people that started believing this guy. All right. Now, why were the, um, the chief priests nervous about Christ? Yeah, they were going to lose their position. I mean, if Christ had fomented a rebellion against Rome, Rome would have come in, wiped them out. And the people that would have been hurt the most were the Sadducees who ran the temple. I mean, they were very wealthy under Roman rule. They wanted the Romans there because it made them very wealthy. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, but the chief priest got his position by bribing Rome. That's how he got to be chief priest. He bribed Rome. The Pharisees didn't like Christ because he was not part of them. He was not one of them. He didn't say the things they wanted to hear. Pardon? Chief priest Yes, yes. It was an appointed position by Rome. It was an appointed position. Money. Money. Yeah. The chief priest, you got to understand, the chief priest was the chief priest was the wealthiest Jew in Israel. I mean, he he got a kickback on all the temple concessions, right? You want to sell sacrifices here, I get 5% off the top. You want to be a money changer, I get 10% off the top. He's the one that went into the Holy of Holies, too. Yep. Yep. So he, he was the top dog. Yep. And he bought the position. He purchased it. And um, so they said, on. As I'm thinking about that, he went into the Holy of Holies. How did he stay alive? Because he did the externals. Uh, what, Isaiah? Yeah. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I shall go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I'm go- I am, you cannot come. Who do you say these things to? Well, the ones who came to get him. I'm going to be with you a little longer, then I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't come. And then they started asking themselves, well, where does he intend to go that we should not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you shall seek me and not find me where I'm going, you cannot come? Now, how do, what do we understand that to be? Yeah, and they're not going to the Father, right? Where I'm going, you cannot come. In fact, he's going to say the same thing later on in chapter 8. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And they say, what's he going to do, kill himself? Because their idea was the worst sin a person could do was kill themselves. They would go to hell. And that's what he had to mean because, after all, all the Pharisees were going to be in heaven. And if Christ wasn't going to be with them, the only other place he could be is hell. That's their mentality. Can I ask a question here? Yep. Uh, You have some teachers that teach that all the Jews are going to be saved. No. But when you read this, telling them they're the leaders, that they're not coming where I don't know where they get the idea that all Jews are saved. That does not say that. All right. Now, 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 where where it comes out, they probably take that verse that says, 
so all Israel will be saved. They say, well, that means all Israel will be saved. No, that's talking about a natural, national context at the end of the time. But Paul, even in that passage, says they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Just because you got circumcised doesn't make you an Israelite. Just because you got the law doesn't make you an Israelite. Just because you can trace your ancestry to Abraham does not make you an Israelite. An Israelite is one who's circumcised in their heart, not in their flesh. And and that's what Paul makes. In, that's Romans two, where he makes that um, statement. That too, that if you put on Christ, then that makes you Abraham's seed and heirs. Right. And here's here's another one when you want to talk about that. How many Israelites that came out of Egypt are probably in heaven right now? Yeah, that's about the extent. Why does it say that? Well, Hebrew says these all died in no unbelief. Yeah. You stop and think about it. You know, you see all the works of God. You know, we talk about this. You see the miracles, miracles, miracle, 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 and you conclude that God brought you out to the desert to kill you. Yeah. Well, Moses, Joshua, Caleb. Probably others, but but not a lot. I mean, I mean, when you look at the, the at the proportion of Israelites who came out, the remnant is few. And in fact, Christ. In fact, remember what Christ told Elijah. He says, "I've only got I've got seven thousand who've not bowed the knee to Baal." But that was a small remnant. God's always had a remnant. Most Israelites, hell is full of Israelites. Hell is full of them. Not all Israel will be saved. In, in a salvific sense. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, you gotta go, this might be an interesting thing for those of you in college. Go do a study on the Feast of Tabernacles and, and the rituals behind it. One of the things is that uh, it's sent around water and light. And they would take a, a, a big thing of water and, and they would pour it out sort of as, as a representation of God's provision you know, of, of the wilderness. Because the Feast of Tabernacles was what? To commemorate what? Yeah, the, the Exodus, the wandering. And, and Christ, you know, God providing water for them. And as this, and many Bible commentators say, most likely as the priest was pouring out this water, Christ stood up and says, I am the true water. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is a repetition of, of course, what he said to the woman at the well, the true and living water. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. You want to be truly satisfied, spiritually satisfied? I am the one. But this he spake concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Ghost spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So what is the living water here that Christ is talking about? The Holy Spirit. When did the Holy Spirit come? Pentecost, right? Well, there's a lot of misunderstanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Um, when you look at the Trinity's role in, in, in salvation, 
whatever dispensation you're in. Doesn't matter whether you're Adam or all the way to the end. Salvation is always by grace. Grace is appropriated by faith. Faith in what? Faith in what God tells you. Okay? And the agent of regeneration, the one who brings faith, the one who opens your eyes, the one who enables you to see is the Holy Spirit in any period of time. Okay? So how was it that David was was redeemed? He was redeemed through the agency of the Holy Spirit who convicted him of sin, who gave him understanding. It's that way in all dispensations. So it's not like, well, the Holy Spirit wasn't in the Old Testament. He certainly was in the Old Testament. The difference is that in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit has a very special connection to us in that he indwells us, which is different. We have a permanent resident Holy Spirit within us that the Old Testament people did not have. All right? Don't you think, too, God's a trinity and God's ever-present? So wherever God is, there is also the other two parts of the trinity. Right. But the Holy Spirit was operative. The Holy Spirit was definitely operative in the Old Testament. You know, um, he empowered people for special tasks on special occasions. Samson had the Spirit come upon him. David, you know, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Uh, Isaiah talked about the Spirit of the Lord God, things like that. So the Spirit was there, but the Spirit was not a permanent indwelling presence like he is to us. That's different. And that's what Christ is talking about here, the permanent indwelling of the Spirit. It's not that the Spirit is absent. The, the, the way he works is different. I don't know if that made any sense. It's how he works. Does that make any sense, Gary? I mean, it makes sense, but it's still not, you know, like, understanding. I mean, like, you know, you said the way he works is different. The Spirit does not indwell did not indwell all of the Old Testament saints like he does us today. Did he indwell some saints at different times? Well, sure he did, but not the permanent indwelling presence of the Spirit. That's what we have today that they did not have in the Old Testament. Really is, it's like, now it's like the body is being dwelled. Right. Right. In the Old Testament, you just was with certain people who performed. Yeah. But not every believer had the permanent indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, anybody who believed in the Old Testament believed because the Holy Spirit brought them understanding and comprehension. Because the Spirit is the agent of regeneration. That is his role in redemption. He is the one who redeems. All right. In, in the sense of regenerating, making you alive. You're dead. The Spirit makes you alive. And the Spirit gives you spiritual understanding and insight. Because it was, it was, you know, so me it's like, this, you know, in the Old Testament, the Spirit just came upon people. He did come upon people, but he had a ministry apart from that, in that he enlightened people. He gave them understanding. David said, where am I going to go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? The Holy Spirit was certainly there. But a lot of, a lot okay. of uh, preachers teach now that the difference from then and now is that the Spirit indwells us now, but then it just came upon them. Right. And that, there's, there's truth to that. Well, when, from the indwelling. 
Okay, if, if you're talking about from the indwelling perspective, yes, that's an accurate statement. If you're talking about the only thing the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament is he came upon people once in a while, that's not a true statement. He did more than that. Does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he permanently indwelled all believers. That's different than the Old Testament. Yeah, okay. Okay. That's different. Yeah. So we look at the New Testament view of the Holy Spirit. It's the it's the teacher, it infills us, it empowers us. Yes. It's God's presence in our life that makes it possible for us mm -hmm. to see the truth and then also to live it. Mm -hmm. And he regenerates you. He's the agent of regeneration. Mm-hmm. And we're going to find that his work later on in, you know, 14, 15, 16, we'll really understand the Holy Spirit's work in that, those passages. Therefore, many of them from the crowd, when they heard this saying, truly, this is the prophet, others said, this is not the Christ. <clears throat> 40. <clears throat> but some said, well, the Christ come out of Galilee. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David, from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. He got them all. There, what you see here is you see mass confusion. You have some people see the works that he did and concluded this is the Messiah. They heard the message, this has got to be the Messiah. And others said, well, wait a minute, he's, not for, he's from Galilee, not Bethlehem. Now, of course, they didn't check that out. But there's division, there was confusion. And... Because it was not yet his time, the rulers could not lay hands on him and take him like they wanted to. Now, that's the one something I've always wondered about those types of scripture. Is that some type of supernatural intervention? I think it is. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It was not yet time. Okay. So, I, I mean, just in the natural... I can't understand why. Yeah, it was not time. And what you see here is you see a growing confusion because on one hand, you've got people who are starting to see that maybe this is the Messiah. You've got others that have rejected him out of hand because, you know, they pull out the little checklist and he's missing something here. Uh, Bethlehem, uh, he's not there, check off, you know. He didn't go to our seminary, uh, check that off. Uh, he didn't keep this, well, check that off. But others are starting to see him, and there's confusion. There's a growing confusion. Who is he? All right. And then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, said to them, why have you not brought him? The officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. So the Pharisees and the chief priests sent the temple guard out to get him, and they can't get him. He said, you know, no one's spoken like this guy. Now, this is probably not everything that Jesus said, but even they were confused. Yeah. About who he was. It's kind of like the, the scenario in, in Gethsemane where they come to arrest him and he asks, What are you seeking? And they tell him, you know, Jesus, and he says, I am he. And they they, they don't proceed. Mm -hmm. They drop. They, they, they fall backwards, right. you know. And, and, you know. And that's not slaying in the spirit like Benny Hinn does. <laughs> you understand <laughs> that, all right? Um, yeah, I'm, just, I'm, pull, I'm, I'm giving you a hard time here. Yeah. Um, Christ, yeah, Christ was sovereign. And see, 
if you try to think through this, you, you, you're going to wind up under the bed speaking the Greek alphabet backwards because it doesn't make any sense. On one hand, Christ is avoiding Judea because it's, you know, he doesn't want to precipitate something, but yet he has sovereign control over the events. Why didn't he just go down to Judea? Because he could have, he had control anyways, right? Well, that's not what the father told him to do, is it? No, that he didn't go with his brother. Yeah. So, I mean, the bottom line is that Christ was sovereign over, not, not Christ, but God was sovereign over Christ's mission, the timetable, the schedule. It was not yet his time to be taken prisoner. They wouldn't take him prisoner. Well, you see his total confusion on their part. I don't know who he is. No one spoke like this man. This is not your average, normal, run-of-the-mill rabble-rouser out there. This is there's something different about him. And especially when he did the miracles and signs, there's something going on here. And there was confusion about that. And the Pharisees... In, there's an, in, an inner fear of, of doing something against God. So yeah. Part of the, yeah. The religious order, and you know, until that confusion is cleared up, they're definitely not going to make the wrong move. And then the Pharisees answered them, who's them? Well, the, 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 the guards... Are you also deceived? Don't tell us that you're buying into this garbage. Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? What's the rhetorical answer? Yes. No. The rhetorical answer is no. <laughs> They're talking about the big shot rulers and Pharisees. Yeah. yeah. The general clan. Yeah, I mean, you come here. Here's the sin here. These are 70 high ranking Jewish muckety mucks. Who are steeped in the law, and none of them believed in Christ. The Supreme Court. The Supreme Court. Now, did he have a Joseph of Arimathea floating around and a Nicodemus and a couple? Yeah, but generally, what was the conclusion of the Sanhedrin? He was a wicked man. He was a wicked man. Why? Uh, he didn't go to our seminaries. He's not preaching our message. He doesn't believe the same things we do. And since we're all going to heaven, it's obvious that he's not going there because he's not one of us. And what they what you find here is the Sanhedrin have rejected him out of hand. They've not even gone to the trouble to really try to find out about him. They've rejected him out of hand because he did not fit their pinheaded. It's a good Bill O'Reilly term. Their pinheaded view of what the Messiah would be. He can't be one. He can't be the Messiah because we. He can't be. But this crowd does not know, but the but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. In other words, this crowd doesn't know the law. Now you understand, the average Pharisee was a pompous <clears throat> you can fill in the blank. That was how they viewed themselves. They knew the law, and anybody that was not one of them was accursed. In fact, the Pharisees said, some of the Pharisees said, you got to stay away from the Ham Aretz, the people of the land, the sinners. And, and in fact, you got to be so separate from them, you can't even teach them the law. If you try to teach a sinner the law, you're going to be defiled. That's their view of the people. Um, Pharisee was not a heretical thing. You had to learn. The way you became a Pharisee, you had to go to the seminary. He had to be taught by one of their recognized authorities and get their imprimatur on you. 
and get your little diploma, whatever it was. That's how you got to be a Pharisee. Right. And and you had to be smart. I mean, most Pharisees could quote most of the Old Testament from heart. I mean, they they knew their Old Testament. They knew the words. And um, they looked down on anybody that did not that was not one of them with disdain and contempt, even. They wanted nothing to do with people that was not of their caliber. The Pharisee, when he got up in the morning, one of the standard prayers of the Pharisee was, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a tax collector, and I'm not a woman. No, I'm just saying that, that was their prayer. That's, that was the prayer of the Pharisee. They looked down on anybody. And, and, and when they're saying, they're saying, well, the people that are following, they're accursed because they're, they're deceived because we've got the truth. And if they're not with us, they're accursed. And then Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does, not, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Now, what, what is the... Nicodemus was a believer. All right. But what he's saying there is saying, you're judging this guy before you even know what he's saying. Did the average Pharisee know what Jesus was teaching? No. No. Yeah. Yep. No one ever sat down to find out what he was really teaching. They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look for you. No prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Suspicious, huh? Yeah, you from Galilee too? You, no prophets from Galilee, you know that. Mad at well, you know, the problem is, stop and think about it. All the, all the Pharisees had to do was research Christ's bi biographical data, and what would they have found out? He was born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. No, they did not. I mean, I, they did not. They did not. Recognize anyway, right? Stop and think about this, okay? You're the average Pharisee, you know, and you get a call from Herod, <coughs> king. And Herod says, uh, these magi have come from the east. Now, magi in those days were the ones that went around and anointed king. There's this entourage from the east. And they're talking about some king of the Jews. Where's he going to be born? What was the answer? All of them said Bethlehem. And then what did they do? No. What did the Pharisees do? They went home. They didn't go look. They went home. I never thought about that. Now, if I was the average Pharisee and I, I said, Wait a minute, you know, here, and they've got these kingmakers from the east, and there's something afoot here, you know. Maybe we ought to go check this out. And Bethlehem was two miles away by foot. It was a it was a 30-minute walk. All you had to do was go down there and see. And not one of them took the effort to even send an entourage down there to find out. I guess they figured it out. 
teacher, the Messiah, he'll be coming to the school in a little while. Yeah. He'll be joining the ranks. Herod didn't last much longer after that. Right? He didn't. He was gone pretty quick. Yeah. And everyone went to his own house, 33, 53. Now, for those of you textual critics and that some Bibles do not have this next section in them. NIVs, some NIVs omit it. And um, the reason being is there's very little textual evidence that this is part of John's original gospel. In fact, John's gospel picks up most, if, if you read the flow of the gospel and you take this story out, the flow flows better than with the story in it. All right. And so there's there's really little textual evidence that this is really part of John's original gospel. But having said that, almost everybody who, who says that agrees it is most likely an accurate account of an event that happened. Okay. So, and, and we don't have time here to go into all the textual pros and cons and whether it should or shouldn't be. Um, suffice it to say, when you look at the manuscript evidence of the, of the Greek New Testament, there's, a, there's just a handful of passages like this. Um, this, this I, would, I would lean to say that this was not part of John's original gospel that he wrote. All right. It was a story that they knew about. Somebody put it in a margin because they remember it, and it, and it probably it illustrates what's going on here very well, their hypocrisy. And that was later on brought into the text in the western part of the empire, away from the other textual streams that we have. But we that's far beyond our discussion here. Suffice it to say, I do think it's a true and accurate account of something that happened. So there's value in going over it. Because what's it illustrating? The hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Let me just, I don't want to get into a lot of detail here, but this, this disturbs me that it's in some Bibles and not others. When was the canon established? Um, about th in, in the late 300s. Okay, and so there was no mention of this this chapter until the 12th century, apparently. So it was added to the canon 900 years later? Well, well I don't want to spend too much time on this, but let me look at my um, critical Greek text here and see what textual... Um, evidence is behind this passage here, and I, we can answer that. 753 to, it's really 753 to 8-7 is the um, disputed verses here. Okay. Um, it's omitted in um, P66 is the um, is a ancient papyrus, goes way back to the you know, the third century. It's it's the oldest record really we have of John, other than the John Ryland's papyrus, and that omits it, mm -hmm. along with P seventy five. So two of the, the the far by far the oldest papyri manuscripts we have omit this. Um and then most all of the uncials, that's the large letter text written on vellum that date from like the fourth century to the fifth century, um, they omit it. Um, the ancient Italian translations, the Italia that goes back to the second and third century, does not have it in it. Now, why is that important? 
What's the significance of the Italian not having it? The old Italian text. No. No. Not except it means that whenever they translated John, right? They didn't have that passage there. Right? Okay. The Syriac, the, in fact, all the ancient Syriac versions don't have it in it. All right. Um, the 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 Kiritonian, the Syriac, the Peshitta, the Harklian, Syriac, and those are very ancient texts. They do not have this passage in them. Um, the Coptic texts do not have it in the Armenian text, the Georgian text, the Slavic text, the Diatessaron of Origen does not have in it. Um, there's a whole, I mean, there's a ton of texts that do not have it in it. Um, and, and by the way, these texts here, you know, these are splattered all over the Roman Empire. It's not like it's in one location, but they're splattered all over the Roman Empire, and they all go back to the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries. They're all omitting it, okay? The first one it shows up in is, is, the, is D. D, I think, was, um, I can't remember offhand. I got the note there. But I think it's somewhere around 500... It's a little after 500 A.D. is when D, we've traced D back to. Um, and then it's in the cursives, the, the small letter manuscripts, and those are all dated from the 9th to the 15th century. All right? It's in there. Um, the Latin Vulgate has it. Um, the Palestinian Syriac has it. Um and there's some Roman, ancient Roman authors that include it as well. I was going to ask okay. as well, where, what was Jerome's source? Jerome translated from the text that he had in front of him when he translated. <laughs> All right. Do we know what the text was? I don't think so. But the point is, the point is, <laughs> the first time this shows up is somewhere around 500 A.D., and it appears to show up in those texts associated with the, the, the Roman part of the empire near Rome. Okay? It doesn't show up in the eastern parts of the empire until the very later manuscripts, the later minuscules that date from the 9th to the 15th century. Okay? Concept of adding this. Okay, you have the, the church fathers establishing the canon. Mm -hmm. 200 years later, or maybe even longer, this was added. And so, my well, question is: Is it is it God inspired? Is it mm -hmm. is this passage inspired by God? Uh, and it, is it is it in violation of prohibition against adding? To well, it's a good. No, it is not. No, it is not. Um, it's a good paper topic. <laughs> All right. No, it is not. Let me let me. Yeah, let me, let me, now, now I know Jack Hiles and the KJV only people are coughing up their skulls, frothing at the mouth, and damning me to an eternal damnation of the lake of fire because I dare say this. But the, the, the problem that you have, the issue that you have, is we don't have a copy of the, the Bible or the, the, the entire New Testament as of 300 A.D. We don't have a copy as of 500 A.D. We've got a manuscript here and a manuscript there and one over here, but we don't have the, the whole thing. And your job as a textual critic is just to take all of the various piles of all the manuscripts 
that are dating from the, you know, the second century AD all the way up to the 15th and do the best job you can to produce the original text. And in 99.99% of the case, you can pull that off very easily. It's not rocket science. It takes work to do it. But you can be extremely confident of the original text. There's only a handful of these things like this that there's even a question on. This happens to be one of them. All right. And when I say it was not part of John's original gospel, right, does not mean that it's not a true story. All right. I would argue that it probably does not belong here because it makes more sense. It makes more sense. Let me read this. Verse 52. They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. All right. And then it picks up down here, um, 12. <clears throat> then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I'm the light of the world. All right. This, this does not contact. He's in the temple teaching. And then you've got this story of the woman taking adultery put right in the middle of this. All right. <clears throat> again, it's, 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 it's a debate, you know. It's a, it's a valid debate, a valid question, all right? But here, you know, in response to this, and we study this in our, in our bibliology class very, very strongly, you take all of the disputed passages in the New Testament, you take them out or you leave them in, your theology is not altered. It's not, okay? Um... 1 John 5, 7 is another big one. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. There's no Greek text on the planet that, that, is, that, is, that has that, other than four manuscripts that are dated from, they dated them from the late 14th century. All right? There's no quote of that verse in the debates on the deity of Christ. That would have been a good one to pull out on the deity of Christ, wouldn't it? Council of Nicaea, you're arguing about is Jesus Christ God or not? Pull out 1 John 5, 7, the debate's over, everybody goes home. Nobody, that, that verse is not even, there's no evidence anywhere in Christianity that that text existed prior to the 15th century, 14th, 15th century. Is it a true statement? The sure it is. Story? No, the, the, the 1 John 5, 7. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a true statement. Absolutely it's a true statement. Is it what John wrote in 1 John? No, I don't think it is. It's a true statement. But it's not part, because there's no textual evidence for it. But it's, oh, I'm and I'm not denying the Trinity if I say that verse doesn't belong there, because there's too many other passages where the Trinity pops up. But, but adding this, this can I continue? I'm sorry, I'm going to cut you off. But allowing this to continue in the Scripture... How is that different from, say, the Catholic Church Fathers who at times have added... Because there, is, there, is, there are manuscripts that we do have from the 5th century that have this text in them. All right. D goes back. I, I'm trying to remember. I'm thinking D is uh, 450, somewhere around in there, if I remember right. Okay. Um, so there, the, And so the, the question... There's little evidence that it should be there, but there's still some evidence that somewhere there are manuscripts that had that in there. All right. So as a textual critic, you can debate back and forth whether it should or should not be there. It's not going to alter your theology. 
All right. Um, and unfortunately, those who want to try and, and, and promote the primacy of the KJV text. And by the way, I just got my sword of the Lord and they have a big conference on this. I'm going to probably try and get the tapes and see what they have to say. They, they, they turn the Bible into a book. It's like a magical book of incantations. Now understand what I mean by that. Okay. They say if I alter any word in the Bible, I'm destroying the text. I'm destroying God's word. All right. I, you know, I, in our bibliology class, I pulled up a, an article from the Internet about a guy who bought his counterfeit King James Bible. And he was freaking out because his Bible was counterfeit. And I'm, you know, this ought to be interesting to read. And come to find out what it was is that he bought a King James Bible where they spelled the word Savior, S-A-V-I-O-R, the English spelling, as opposed to S-A-V-I-O-U-R, which is a seven-letter proper spelling for Savior. And by changing it from seven to six, we're, 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 we're bringing the doctrine of man in there and on and on and on he went. And this guy actually went through the entire, I don't know, he's got more time on his hands than I do. But he went through and he found out every spelling difference, which were minute. But he's got a false, he's got to burn this Bible because it's a counterfeit. You know, you, you turn the Bible into a book of magical, a magical book. It, it's magical in the sense that it contains the word of God. It is the power of God. And were the original manuscripts inerrant? Absolutely they were. But I don't have one. I wish I did. Because then we'd have, wouldn't have this argument. I wouldn't have any textual notes in here if we had... Every, if every Greek manuscript we had was 100% identical, they're not. There are spelling errors, you can pick those out. There are slips of the pen, you can pick those out. You know, and when you get rid of all of that, again, you're down to about 166 differences that, that are non-trivial. And of those, you've got about five or six of them that are of this caliber. Everything else is not. And, and, You've still got the deity of Christ. You've still got the blood atonement. You've still got the Trinity. You've still got the second coming. Every doctrine that we believe in is unaltered by any of these. It's unaltered. Because these doctrines are taught throughout Scripture. We don't have a single doctrine. Stop and think about it. Is there any single verse of Scripture that proves the deity of Christ? Where do you find it? All over the place. All over the place. If I want to get rid of the deity of Christ, I gotta do more than take first John five seven out. I gotta I gotta rip out most of John if I want to do that. The Trinity. Where's it at? Well, it's all over the Bible. The sacrificial substitutionary death of Christ, where's that at? It's all over the place. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone, all over the place. You can't you can't get rid of that doctrine by disputing any single questionable text. You know, and, and again, the discussion is as far beyond this class here, far beyond what we can do here. And, and by the way, the KJV only people, some of them even say that God re-inspired the text through the KJV authors. There's actually a re-inspiration of scripture. So regardless of what the Greek texts say, regardless of whether we have any evidence Whatever they came up with was the correct text. The problem is they talk about the 1611 King James, which not anybody in here can read because it's written in Old English. I got a friend who's an old regular Baptist, and I saw his version of the Hebrew. The 1611? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a tough read because it's the the spelling is different, and 
you know, it's, it, yeah. It's a language like, it's not the English I speak. Yeah. Uh, can I, I'll give you my viewpoint, which don't mean nothing in the scope of things. I grew up with uh, being taught there's two witnesses, the Holy Spirit and the Holy Word of God. Mm -hmm. And the Holy Word is in Eric. It's exactly the way God intended it to be. And I believe that to this day. And, and I, for one, everything that we believe and we look to reassure ourselves, we go back to the scripture. And it's hard for me to do to say anything that would even bring any kind of shadow of doubt upon mm -hmm. the Holy Scripture. And, you know, I can say the same thing. I can say the exact same thing. I can say the exact same thing you just said and, and say that I don't think this story belongs. But this is still, I don't have an original. The problem is I don't have an original text of John. Now, if we had an original text of John, what would we probably be doing? We'd be worshiping it, probably. We'd have it, you know, bowing down to it or something. We don't have an original text. If we did, we wouldn't be having any of these discussions. If God would have wanted that, it would have been in existence. And he would have had it in existence, and he didn't. You know, and, and, and every manuscript we have, there are differences. And every there's not a single, ma two manuscripts that agree 100% totally all the way through. It always comes back to you know. the element of faith. But... God has preserved his word. Yes. And God has preserved his word in those. And, and again, if you know, we, I did this the study on the textual criticism part in bibliology a little bit. The more you understand about the textual criticism and the disciplines they do, the more confidence you have in the text, not less. The more confidence you have, all right, that we have what is virtually, for all practice, virtually the original text that was written by the authors of scripture all right which is which is a, god has preserved his word now was it inerrant when it was first written down absolutely the every every letter every word every everything was exactly from the pen of god from the mind of god but you know what i don't have that copy i wish i did but i can pretty much get back to it because i have you know, you're talking about 30,000 fragments of the Greek New Testament. 30,000. 30,000. But anyways, let's get on with this. Suffice it to say, this is, a, I believe, a very valid story. Very valid. And it actually happened. I believe it actually happened. And Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He usually go, went there to rest. All right. And probably I think this story happened at this time. All right. It was not just randomly thrown in, but it actually fit the flow of what was happening. And early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Uh Anybody in here know biology very well? Maybe. So, What's adultery require? Two man and a woman. Where's the guy? That's what they That's a good question. Where's the guy? Um, this was a setup. Yeah. It's a pure setup. And it may be that even they got one of their own Pharisees to try and entrap this woman into enticing him or solicit him, and they caught her. 
It's a sting operation. Mm -hmm. And they bring him in. And they set the woman down now in, 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 in the middle of them. Now Moses and the law commanded us that Shush should be stoned. But what do you say? Moses said we have to stone this woman. What do you say? Now the problem with the Pharisees is they were dealing with a, with someone that could outwit them without thinking about it, right? They were outmatched. There wasn't even there wasn't even a question. This they said, testing him that they might have something in which to accuse him. If Jesus said, yeah, go stone her, he would be breaking the law of Rome because Rome did not allow Jews to kill him. So they could they could get him in trouble with Rome. If he said, no, don't stone her, then he's disobeying the law of Moses. And they can accuse him before the people of disregarding the law of Moses. I mean, they think they've got him. They got him in a, a lose, 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 lose. No matter what he does, he's going to lose. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his fingers, though he did not hear. He, he tried to ignore him. I like what somebody said. Uh, he was writing down the name of the Pharisee's girlfriends. He might have been doing that. We don't know. Um, I like to know what he was writing. By the way, this is interesting. This is the only time in Scripture where it says Jesus wrote. Yeah. He's writing on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. But he wrote as though he wasn't listening to them. He was pretending to ignore them. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Um, I think the Greek says, He is without this sin. You get to throw the first stone. And then the Holy Spirit ratchets up the conviction. And of course, what happens? Begin to leave. Start with the oldest to the youngest. It's kind of like a speck plank thing, right? Yep. Now, technically, Christ is not saying don't stone her. He said, okay, any of you perfect guys, you can stone her first. The ones who've not committed sin, if you're without sin, you get to throw the first stone. And again, some say without this sin, the sin of adultery. If any of you have never committed adultery in your heart, in your practice, you get to throw the stone. And he started leaving. From the oldest to the youngest. Can I ask you a question? Do you think this is also the beginning of the break between the uh, Old Testament tradition and the law of Moses and coming into the New Testament age with the age of grace? Because no. We no longer do that. No. We don't stone somebody. No, I don't think that's it at all. No. Because no. technically Judaism was still under the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law required stoning as long as they were a national entity. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think that's reading into it something that's not there. And by the way, let's, let's, let's be honest. If you commit adultery nowadays, what, should, what do you deserve? God's mercy. You know, he's more merciful now than he was. But And he stooped down and wrote on the ground again. And those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, the woman standing 
in the midst. Jesus turned up, or the Holy Spirit turned up the conviction. Their consciences accused them. And they dared not reach down and throw a stone. And of course, he looks up and sees nobody with the woman there. He said, well, where are your accusers? Because no one condemned you. And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What does he mean by that? Neither do I condemn you. I do not pass the sentence on you. But then he tells her to do what? Right. Go and sin no more. So was it sin? Sure. Now, why did Christ have the right to do this? He's God. He has the right to do this. And this shows the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. You know, they they were very good at pointing out the sins of others, and they, they didn't even consider their own sin. And by the way, we need to be careful of that as, as ourselves. It's very easy for us to go around, and we can see all the sin in others, and we totally overlook our own shortcomings, our own weaknesses. And that's hypocrisy. And what you see here is God's mercy shown to this woman. Did she deserve to be stoned? Sure she did. But see, Christ knew that there was something else going on here. They were trying to set him up. They were trying to set her up. And they were using her. They weren't, were the Pharisees really interested in justice? No, they weren't interested in justice. They weren't interested in God's holiness being upheld. No, they weren't interested in that at all. They just wanted to get you. We want, we want to get a gotcha on Christ. We want to trap him. They weren't even interested in one way or the other about the woman. No. She was, she was a tool to be used to try and trap Christ. And again, it's interesting. Where was the man? Which leads many to believe that this was a, a sting operation set up by this woman. She's being entrapped. Jesus said, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. It's not that Christ is soft on sin. It's not that sin doesn't matter. But God says the same to us, right? When we ask him to forgive us, he said, I forgive you, go and sin no more. And then Jesus spoke to them again. In the temple saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. One of the things that they had during the Feast of Tabernacles is in the temple they would have these giant menorah candle labras going with the light for the days of the feast days. And even at night, these, these, these big, the temple being high up in the city, this, this light from these menorah would be seen throughout the city, sort of as a large torch up on the temple mount. And that's when Christ stands up and says, I am the light of the world. This is light, but he's using that as an illustration. I'm the light of the world. What's in, what's in, 
What's he mean by he's the light of the world? Well, John early on calls him the light, right? The light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And throughout the scripture, light is spiritual truth and understanding, spiritual insight, um, salvation. We walk in light. We're children of the light, not children of the night. In Thessalonians, we're not, we don't walk in darkness like the children of the night. We're children of the day. And the Pharisee said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. You're just saying this of yourself. And again, if you just say it of yourself, your witness is not an accurate witness. If you're just making this up about you, you're not an accurate witness. And Jesus said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, even if I did, my witness is true for I know where I came and where I'm going. And you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. Even if I'm just saying this, even though there's no one else agreeing with me, I know it's true because I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. I came from the Father to bring you the message. Now, were there evidences that he was telling the truth? Well, sure, you had all the miracles and all the signs and all the wonders. You had the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Of course he did. But Christ saying, even if it was true, even if I was... Even if there's no other witness, I know what I'm saying is true because I know where I'm coming from and where I'm going. And you don't know where I came from and you don't know where I'm going. You're in darkness. You don't understand. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true for I'm not alone, but I'm with the Father who sent me. It's also written in the testimony, written in your law, that the testimony of two men is true. I'm one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. How did the Father bear witness of Christ? Through the miracles. Through what he did. And by the fact that at the baptism, you had the Father say, this is my beloved Son, and whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. Christ said, you even law, your own law says the witness of two is true. I bear witness of myself. The Father bears witness of the message. The words that I say are true. My Father bears witness. I, bears, I bear witness. And then he said to him, where is your father? Where is he? And Jesus answered, you have neither me, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you have known my father also. Now, He's going to really pick up on this later on again in chapter 14, 15, 16. Christ is saying, you want to know who the Father is? Know me. In fact, Philip asked him, said, you know, just show us the Father. And what did Christ say to Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the Father's like? Look at me. And the Pharisees say, show us the Father. Show us your Father. <clears throat> They're probably saying that sarcastically. Show us who he is. And Jesus said, well, since you do not know me and you do not know the Father, you couldn't figure it out if you had to. And again, the, the only way you can really understand what Christ is saying here, all right, really get a grasp on it, is to understand that the knowledge of the Father, the knowledge of Christ, is something that God grants to those to whom he will. He gives them the ability to understand it. John chapter 6, 
unless the Father draws me, draws you, you can't come to me, and you can't come to me unless the Father allows it and gives you an understanding. You don't know me because the Father's not granted you that right to know me. And you wouldn't know me, and, and this is the other thing to understand, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, you can't find God. People say, well, I'm searching for God. No, they aren't. Does an unbeliever search for God? What are they looking for? Peace, joy, happiness, fire insurance. They're not looking for God for who he is. They're looking for God for what he gives. No one seeks God. No one's looking for God for who he is. And Christ is telling them, you do not know me and you do not know the Father. Because you're in darkness. And I'm telling you, <clears throat> these words Jesus spoke in the treasuries he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him for his hour not yet come. Again, that goes back to the supernatural protection. Jesus said to them, I'm going away, and you'll seek me, and you'll die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. She said, I'm going away. Now, what's he talking about here? What's he going to refer? What's he referring to? Yeah, I'm going away. I'm going to die, and where I'm going, you can't come because you're going to die in your sin. And where I'm going, you can't come. Isn't that a sad thing to think about? Christ looks at you and says, "You're not coming where I'm coming. You're going to die in your sin." That's scary. That's exactly what he did. He was alive. That's what he told And you know, and, and, and you know, yeah. One of the things that you, another concept that keeps popping itself up throughout Scripture is this notion of the judicial blinding blindness of God. If you will not believe, God will blind you so that you cannot believe. And you may live another fifty years, and you will never believe. These Pharisees, what have they done? I mean, this is getting towards the end of Christ's ministry. They have seen enough of Christ to have figured out who he should be. And what was their conclusion? He's doing this by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And Christ is looking at him saying, I'm going to go away and you can't follow me because you're going to die in your sins. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And these guys lived another 10, 20, 30, 40 years maybe. But because of their rejection... God's saying, fine, I won't bother you again. I won't convict you of your sin again. By the way, are there people alive today that will never be Christian? Yes. Because they've passed beyond the grace of God? Yes. Do you know who they are? No. It's not up to us to decide. But you can, I don't care whether you're, whether you're a five-point Calvinist or an Arminian, you have to admit that there does come a point in a person's life who goes to hell where they've heard the gospel for the last time. Yeah. And they may live another 20, 30, 40 years, but they have heard it for the last time. If they do not respond, they will never believe. And that's where the Pharisees are. And Christ is looking and saying, you're going to die in your sin. And where I'm going, you can't come. And what was their response? Was well, he going to kill himself? When he says, we cannot go. Because in their mind, they're going to heaven. 
So this blathering that this Christ is doing here, obviously, if I can't go where he's going, that must mean he's going to hell because I'm going to be in heaven. Therefore, he's got to be in hell. He's going to kill himself. See, their thought was that if you kill yourself, you go to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect 200. You go to hell. Hell was for those who killed themselves. So obviously Christ is talking about suicide here. That sounds biblical too, right? What's that? Yes, it is. Yeah. And he said to him, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you, you, you die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The I am, the he doesn't there. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Who's he talking about there? Where does he pick that one up? Exodus. God is the I am. God is not the I am becoming. There's a whole heresy going on called the openness of God. It's a heresy. If you hear anybody talking about the openness of God, run as fast as you can away from them. Because the openness of God basically says God does not infallibly know the future. He's trying to work things out as he goes along. All right. Yeah. It's called the openness of God or open theism. Bad bananas. Stay away from it. Okay. God is, and then there's this other thing called process theology. The idea of process theology is God is maturing and growing. Okay. God is the eternal I am. He's not the I was. And he's not the I will be. He's the I am. It speaks of his aseity, his self-existence. The fact that he is outside the boundaries of time and space that we know it and comprehend things. And Christ is saying, if you do not believe that I am, in other words, that I am Jehovah God, that I am God, if you do not believe that, you are going to die in your sins. And that, that, folks, is one thing. If you do not believe that Jesus is God, you're not a Christian, period, end of discussion. That's right. So these Jehovah Witnesses come to your door and make Jesus out to be Michael the Archangel, just the firstborn creation of God. They're not going to heaven. And when the Mormons come and say Jesus was the firstborn offspring of Elohim with one of his many wives, they're not going to heaven. You can't get to heaven apart from Christ. And if you deny that he is God, you do not get to heaven. Christ is going to later on say, I am the door of the sheepfold. You want in the sheepfold, you got to come through me. If you climb in over the wall, you're a thief and a robber. There's no other way. And he's telling the Pharisees here, you guys are rejecting the very thing that is required for you to get to heaven. Therefore I say unto you, you will die in your sins, for you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And he said, who are you? They knew who he was, but they didn't want to believe it. And Jesus said, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them from the Father. Christ is saying, I'm telling you exactly what the Father sent me to tell you, and you will not believe it. Now, why would they not believe it? Because they can't believe it. They weren't elected. That's right. I'm going to convert you yet. All right. We got him partway there, folks. We need to pray for his soul. All right. But both of those is true. Both of those is true. 
don't fall down on the sovereignty of God issue and just, you know, what will be will be whether it will it is or isn't. And don't fall on the other side and say it was all up to them. Both of those things are true. Yes, they were not elected, but also what did they do? They rejected, didn't they? And they were certainly held responsible for their rejection. Not only that, but Jesus was telling them straightforward who he was. Yeah, and they didn't. But he was giving yeah. a message that would have saved them. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't believe. They would not believe, they would not respond. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. When you lift up, and He's talking there, that's, that's a euphemism for crucify. Yeah. Now what happened at the crucifixion? What happened to the Son? <coughs> Went out for three hours, didn't it? And what happened to the temple veil from top to bottom? Now, that's a tough thing to do. That was a very thick curtain in the temple. Think of it as the sheer... No, it was not. It was thick. It was tough to tear. And, and it was between the holy and the holiest of holies. Now, that would freak you out, right? You're, you're, you're a priest. You're in there doing... The, and all of a sudden, the, the veil that separates you from God is ripped from top to bottom. Your first thought is, I'm dead. I'm dead. Yep. Christ is saying, and, and by the way, did the Pharisees know all this stuff that went on at the re resurrection? Sure they did. Did they, by the way, here's a question. Did the Pharisees believe in the resurrection? Yeah, they did. In fact, this is interesting. You know, when Christ was crucified, the only group that was worried about him rising again from the dead were the Pharisees. That's right, they put guards over there. Disciples. The disciples said, well, it's all over now. Let's go back to the nets. Yep. The, Pharisees were concerned. the Pharisees were the ones that were worried about it. Enough to put two strong men at the gate to guard it. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And he spoke these, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. What's he, Christ is saying, I came down again, again, again. Christ is trying to make this point. I came down from heaven to speak the words that my Father gave me, and you will not believe them. You won't believe them. Now the onus and now here's you understand this is the schizo part of this election business. In six you see God's part. You the Father grants you the ability to believe, but in John eight what Christ is bringing out is the human responsibility component. You will not believe. He's faulting them for not believing. They are not responding to the light. They are not responding at all to the truth. And Christ saying, I'm not here doing my own thing. I'm here to do the will of the Father, to speak the words he gave me, to do the works that he gave me. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples Indeed. I got a question. <laughs> you bet. Because, you know, I, I grew up under the, the uh, teaching that you can't fall from grace. Mm -hmm. and, and this is one of the scriptures they would bring out. You know, you have to abide. And he's, basically he's telling them, so what's your take on that? Give me your viewpoint on that particular scripture. Okay. Because he, he's almost, when you say the word if, it almost seems like there is a condition to be his disciple. 
The answer to that is yo. Condition, then that condition could not be met or could be met. The answer to that is yo. You know what yo is? No. Yes and no. Okay. I've never had that kind of okay, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna <laughs> learn. This is the yo. The yo. From the divine pers let me let me let me explain in terms of me. Okay. From the divine perspective, I was chosen by God in eternity past, elected to be His son. In time, the Holy Spirit regenerated me. The first thing of which I did was believe and ask Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. And I am forever secure because what God elect, when God elected me, he did not elect the salvation component. He elected me to glorification. Romans chapter 8, we talked about that. Okay? So Christ, God elected me to be with him in eternity future, of which my salvation is a step along the way to that glorification. So from God's perspective, all right, I'm in. Okay? That's God's perspective. Okay? Now let's look at it from our perspective. Okay? From the human perspective, how do I know that I've been elected? You can say that, I guess. That's the answer. I know that I'm elect because I continue. I don't have a copy of the book of life. All right. But from the human person, and that, that's one of the that's one of the, the paradoxes here. There, there's some paradoxes in scripture. If you continue in my words, then you are my true disciple. You can be a disciple, a follower, but not a true follower. Who are the true followers? What dis, what distinguishes a true believer from a professing believer? They continue. What did John say in John chapter two, verse um, after verse 15, uh, 16, 17, 18? They went out from us because they were not of us. They were never part of us. It's not that they were there and they lost it. They were never part of it. Was Judas a believer? No. He never was. Now, it looked from the human perspective he was, but what, what, what um, eventually distinguished him from the true believer? Stepped away. That's the thing. Here's what the scripture teaches if you are a true believer, you will not step aside. You will not leave. I've been wrestling with this whole idea of election. Trying to figure out how am I going to accept it, how am I going to accept it. Wanting to believe the truth. You know, the more I look at it, I, I still have a hard time accepting it fully. For the simple reason, God would that none would perish. I think when Christ died on the cross, he made the way possible for everyone. Potentially, absolutely, he did. I think from the time past, that was ordained by God for Christ to do. I think from the beginning, God knew who was going to be saved, who wasn't. And how much of that selection, I'm not sure. But it just seems to me that the God that would that no one perish, I believe he made the way possible for everyone. And then in the process of our getting saved, in the process of us coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, I think there's still that certain element of will, because we have to abide. We have to exercise a conscious effort because Satan constantly puts things in our path and, and, and to say, choose this instead yeah. of Christ. And, and you're right from the human, you have to, I can't wake up in the morning and say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm in, so I don't have to worry about how I live today. Of course I do. I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to, I want to honor God. I want to please him. But why do I want to please him? 
Because he regenerated me. Why do I love God? Because he first loved me. But it seems like that will always comes into play. And why would that come into play? And, and then you see, like you said earlier, were those that didn't walk with him. Because well, if they walked as disciples for a while, surely mm -hmm. there was some kind of life there. Surely something was taking place. They were enamored of the message. They were they were drawn in some it's for hard, some reason. It's hard to say that there was no life. I mean, you know, I can't understand how that. The scripture happen. the scripture says very clearly. I mean, I'm just trying to exegete the text in front of me. I have no agenda. I'm just trying to say, okay, I got this whole text of scripture. How do I make it all fit? I make it all fit by understanding these two seemingly in my mind, parallel, mm -hmm. contradictory thoughts. From the divine perspective, I have been chosen. From the human perspective, there was a day I had to choose. And when I get up in the morning, I have to decide, am I going to live for God today or am I not? Am I going to continue or am I not? And if I continue, the reason I continue is because God has granted me the strength and the ability to continue. Because in and of myself, I couldn't do that. But I still have to do that. You know, it's like Christ, it's like Paul saying, nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Well, who's living it, Paul? You or Christ? Well, yes. Both of us are. See, I look at this, this whole deal you know, of living for Christ as the process by which the true believers are gleaned out of the world of unbelievers from between the wheat and the tares. Because the, the, and the true believer will constantly make the right choice. Absolutely. Not make the right choice, but their desire is to make the right choice. Their, their the direction. Right choice. And why is that? Because there's, there's the element, there's regeneration within them. They are truly born again. All right. And, and, and what, from the human perspective, see, I can't see the halos and the E signs on your forehead that you're elect. I don't know that, but I can say, you know, here's Alan Sullivan who takes Moody classes, and then I find out that he's gone to become a Buddhist monk somewhere. Yeah. Well, what's my, what's my conclusion? He was a Christian and he's not? No, he never was. He looked like it. He gave every evidence of it, but there was no reality within there. What tipped me off? He left and he never came back. Now, I might see Alan Sullivan, he might fall into sin, and then he might repent and come back. Why did he come back? Because he was truly born again. He never left and went and never came back. Look at Peter. Did Peter reject Christ? Yeah. But he came back. Did Judas deny Christ? And he never came back. What's the difference? One was redeemed, one was not. And, and, and you can't... The struggle is, and, and we got to quit here because we're out of time. The struggle is we try to fit it all together in our mind. And we can't, I cannot do that. The Bible teaches that if you go to hell, it's because you reject Christ. There's no doubt about that. And I believe that. And the Bible teaches if I go to heaven, it's not because I lucked out and chose Christ. It's because he chose me before the foundation world and granted me the faith to believe. And both of those things are true because I got too much scriptural evidence on both sides to deny either one of those. And I don't know how they fit together. I accept them both. I say, yep, okay, Lord, whatever you say. And I go to the next passage because I don't know how to make them go together. And, you know, humanly, there are some things that we're not going to put together, right? Because if we did, we'd have the knowledge of God. And somewhere along the line, you've got to say, Lord, I don't understand it, but... I'll take your word on it. I believe it.
So, all right, we'll pick up. We got farther than I thought we would, but we'll we'll get along through here. Father, thank you for this day and for the time to study, and I pray that uh, you'd help us to ponder these truths, consider them, think about them, and uh, help us as we wrestle through these tough theological points. But in the end, Father, I pray that above all, we would just believe you, believe what you said, take it for what it says. And even though we may not be able to sort it all out in our own minds, we just let you have some of those mysteries. <laughs> thank you for this time. Bring us back safely next week in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.